I used to ask myself that question. I used to say, well, why hasn't anybody else done this if I'm planning to do it? Um, and, and sometimes I get an answer. Um, oftentimes I don't. Oftentimes I'm just like, well, uh, I know nobody's done it because I went looking for a solution and there's nothing out there. Um, but then usually what happens is an innovative company can be an old company that's trying to build a product that's never been built, or it could be a new group, new company that's trying to build a product that's never been built. But to me, innovation is doing what has never been done before. Um, so the real question is, how do you get people to work on something that has not been demonstrated to work? Everything about your physiology is going to start pulling you back to the world of the known. And not just, I mean, first of all, your cells are going to do this. Your brain's going to do this. And your parents are going to do this. And your friend's going to do this. And everyone's going to be like, ah, but okay, man, stop that shit and come back and do something else. They're saying this because they like you and they want you to be safe like they are. That's a very good question. Um... So, hey, Jim, how are you building well? Yes, thank you, Avik. Let, let's get into it. So, you, um, you have the inner voice and the idea here, Jimmy. When I was pestering you so much, what do you think was Jimmy thinking? What was his intuition or gut instinct? Well, look, I mean, I get a lot of people who want to talk to me. Um, and what I found is that they don't actually want to talk to me. Um, they want to talk to my money. Um, so what I've tried to do over the last few years is screen out everybody who just wants to meet my wallet. Uh, so if they want to invest, if they want me to invest in some of their harebrained ideas or they, you know, uh, people who are sort of savvy know not to directly ask for money. They ask for my time. They want to get together. They want to talk. They want to have an interview. Um, and the pitch comes later. And so um, what I try to do is make it difficult for these folks to get to me. Um, and uh, I make it pretty difficult. <laughs> But uh, congratulations, you got through, and uh, I'm looking forward to today. This is going to be fun, because you're the sort of person who, you know, it's worth spending time with. So that's good. Why do you think that? You're persistent. I mean, and, and the other thing is you uh, you actually did the work. Um, like, I've been on podcasts where people have pretended that they read my book or have seen something that I've done, and they're not really prepared. Um, so those end pretty poorly. But, uh, you know, I asked you some pretty specific questions and you got right back to me with the answers and I thought okay this guy's on the ball so definitely I think um, about from different examples and the way that you put things in the book what the main premise was creating an incredible product at the end of the day uh, what I felt throughout the book and I think that's what you have done right at Square now um, Block uh, so I think I'll just Ask a direct question. What do you think is an incredible product? Oh, an incredible product is something that makes a complicated process simple and accessible. Um, so I was um, literally right before um, I came to you, I was uh, in a simulator flying a plane. Uh, and next week I've got to go out and get a pilot certification to be able to fly a certain type of plane. And airplane cockpits are really complicated but there are levels of complexity, right? So the plane that I fly is possible to be flown with a single pilot. 
And the only reason that's possible is because they have taken this enormously complex set of controls and they have automated them in such a way that one person can manage the complexity. You know, airlines used to require two or three or sometimes more crew members just to fly the thing. You know, the Concorde required four people. Uh, the 727 you know, was a three-person crew. 737s are a two-person crew. Like, I'm trying to fly a jet with one guy. And in order to do that, you have to design all the systems so that it's it's very simple. So if I think about a product that's really easy to use, but still powerful, um, that's what I look for. Um, and, and they're rare. Like, I mean, you know, the other day I was driving, I, I rented a car and I got a little, um, I guess it was a, I think it was a Toyota. Yeah, it was a Toyota. And just the steering wheel had like, 15 different controls on it. I'm not talking the sticks, you know, the turn signals or anything. Just there was a scroll wheel and there were controls in the back and there were this button and that button and this. And I looked at this thing and I was like, how the hell do I use these buttons? And, and you know, in the end, the steering wheel is just this thing that I grab and turn. But that's bad design. Like, I don't need 15 different controls. I want a couple, maybe. I mean, I want a horn. That's the one I expect. Um, it's nice to have a way for me to, you know, scroll radio stations up and down. But like this steering wheel was just way too complex. Um, so people overestimate how hard it is uh, to build a great company, but they underestimate how hard it is to build a simple product. Wow. I love the steering wheel analogy there. Um, if I refer to that, do you think, uh, does a bad steering wheel ruin, ruin the whole car? Or No, I mean, it's fine. Like, you just have to ignore it. Um, but it what it does to me is it tells me that there's probably other things that they're missing. You know, it tells me that if I ever got a flat tire, that the way they would have thought about me changing that tire might involve disassembling the back seat. You know, it might involve, uh, well, it's probably going to involve me calling a tow truck because, you know, they'll they'll have this lousy little jack and lug nuts that can't be loosened. And, you know, there's a, they probably didn't think about it. Um, when I experience a great product, I always marvel at how much thought goes into the, th the things that you don't immediately appreciate. Um, and if you're, if you're building good products, you constantly are thinking not as a designer, but as a user. I, I, I had uh, one, of, one of the founders that sold his company Twitter back in the day. I asked him a question that the biggest skill that a person has is um, playing, a sportsman has is playing in the field while knowing and understanding how it feels from the uh, people sitting in the stands. Is that the same thing that you're referring to when you're experiencing as a, your product as a user? I mean, I don't know if I disagree. I don't know if I agree with the statement. Like, I don't. Like, if you're playing on the field mm -hmm. and you ignore me as a fan, I'm okay with that. Like, you know, one of my friends plays in the NBA, and you know, I he doesn't wave to me when you know I'm sitting 
by this. Uh, he's 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 all focused on getting his you know rebounds and stuff. So I, I'm not exactly sure that that first statement applies. But what I'll say that is this, um, and I go over this a lot in the book. It is easy to become comfortable with something that you are intimately familiar with, and that familiarity is. Uh, you know, if you're if you're building a complex product or you're in an area that, you know, people generally don't understand, at some point you'll think it's simple and you'll put out a product that's easy to use in your mind. But in fact, it'll be bewildering to a normal person. And, you know, the greatest companies are ones where they're able to maintain that level of simplicity. But like right now, I'm trying to port this software from one iPad to a new iPad, and I can't do it. Like I just, I, that's my problem today. I can't, I mean, I own both iPads. They're both in my hand, and I can't move my data from one to the other. And if Steve Jobs were alive, I wouldn't have that problem. Like Steve would not let that happen. But Apple is not the same company anymore, and I can't move my data. So there you go. How do you think that Steve Jobs look at great products versus normal people look at? Um, we actually had a meeting with him set up that got yeah. canceled because he was so ill. Um, but at least what I've seen of him and can infer from the things that he's built, um, he was obsessive about design on all levels. So if you remember the next computer, which you probably don't, but I used a next computer. And the next computer was a beautiful machine, inside and out. Like they they had to make special molds for this thing because Steve wouldn't accept a taper. You know, normally if you're casting something that's really square, it's not quite square. It's got a little bit of a taper, so it'll come in and out of the mold. Steve wouldn't have that. Like it had to be perfectly um, square. And and the way he laid out circuit boards and the way the way he insisted that the fans looked and like he he was just obsessive. Uh, on those details and um you know the products that he produced were some of the most transformative things um you know he saved the music industry like iTunes which was the thing that really kind of killed Napster or started you know the the music revolution that we now currently enjoy i mean that that could all be traced back to one guy um and so uh you know, I, I, I've met Steve's wife. I, I know Lorraine a little bit. And, um, you know, there's stories about him not buying appliances for his home because he couldn't find good appliances. And again, you know, I looked at my dryer the other day. I was I was staying someplace who we were renting a house for Christmas and I went to dry some clothes. And again, the dryer had like 50 buttons on it. You know, like I don't need an Argyle sweater setting. Like just dry this pair of socks like remove the water from this thing and maybe give it give me give you a choice of heat levels but aside from that i'm good you know three levels of heat and a go button and it turns off when it's dry that's a fine machine why do you think do simple products really become complex they become complex for a lot of reasons one is uh you keep saying yes to uh user requests so, you know, I build you a dryer. Okay. The dryer has three settings, you know, air, medium, and hot. 
Okay. And it's got one dryness, le dryness level, dry, which means no button at all. So you got, you got literally one, one switch on the thing and, and an on button. Okay. That's my dryer. Then you start using, and I sell a bunch of these. And then somebody comes to me and says, well, Jim, yeah, I really need a dryer, but I don't want to be able to dry all the way. I want kind of damp clothes coming out because I'm going to iron them. And I sit there and think, oh, shit, I got to add another button. Okay, I'll add another button. So now this is a dry knits select. And, uh, and then somebody comes to me and says, well, Jim, you know, we in the, we're in an area with, uh, you know, restricted uh, energy usage during cert certain times of the day. So I want my dryer to come on at midnight when the power is less expensive. So um, uh, I want a time delay on that. And I go, oh, okay, we're well, going to order a bunch of dryers. I'll put a third button and it's a time delay. And then um, somebody else calls me up and says, Jim, you know, I, I always forget to clean the linscreen in my dryer. And the linscreen clogs up and one of them caught on fire the other day. So, uh, you know, you really need to remind me to clean the linscreen. And I'm like, well, shit, you should remember that. But, uh, okay, I guess I'll, I'll add a linscreen sensor. Now I have to add a way for that to signal you. So maybe there's a big red button and it's got to say, you know, lint screen full. Um, and, you know, on and on it goes. So pretty soon I've taken this fairly simple thing. And now I've complicated it to the point where some naive user who just has some wet towels and wants them dry can't figure out if he wants them to tumble clockwise or counterclockwise, you know. So that's what we tend to do to product. And the problem is, you know, if you're in the dryer business and dryers are your life, you will look at a dryer with 14 different controls on it and say, well, that's obvious. You know, you should be able to set the relative humidity and the, uh, you know, barometric pressure. And you should be able to set the uh, cubic feet per minute of, you know, air displaced through the thing. I mean, like if you're a dryer specialist, all that stuff is simple. But if you're just a guy with wet socks, you're probably uninterested. So that's where great products differentiate themselves. They handle a wide range of users, but maintain enough simplicity so that those users are in control and get what they want without getting overwhelmed. Why do you think that that really happened to Apple? Well, Steve's no longer in charge. Like what happens at these companies that become very successful um, is they keep trying to expand. Um, and expansion is typically... Um, different for, from innovation. Like there's, you know, there's like incremental innovation. Like the iPad was an innovation. Nobody was doing tablet computers successfully before the iPad. Now, a bunch of companies had tried, like Microsoft came out with a tablet computer. Um, there are a bunch of examples of failed pre-iPads, but the iPad was the first thing that was a successful tablet computer. But, you know, once it became successful, then Apple has this success on their hands. And they're saying, well, what should we do next? Well, let's make a smaller one. We'll make the iPad mini. Or, well, let's make a bigger one. You know, uh, let's make a detachable keyboard for it. Well, let's now make a stylus for it. So they, they, they keep adding on. And you say, was that innovation? And I, it's kind of innovation. Like it's kind of taking something and extending it. Um, the way, um, you know, food companies, like how many flavors of Doritos are there? Well, there's not just Doritos, right? Like Doritos used to be, they used to be Doritos. You know, when I was a kid, you could eat Doritos. 
Now you have to get Doritos, comma, you know, Sriracha or Fire or, you know, um, sour cream and onion Doritos, or there's probably some sort of Halloween flavor. Like, I don't know how many versions of Doritos there are, but what, what they do is they take something that's fundamentally successful and they extend it, in, in many cases, overextending it. Um, and I'm not that interested in doing that sort of stuff. What I'm interested in is coming up with the next Doritos, the next thing that nobody's done. How do you really come up with that? Um, I don't look for a product. I look for a problem. The big difference is I see the product as a solution to a problem. So I focus on the problem. So right now, I think there's a problem. Well, I know there's a problem in the affordability of diapers. Um, I know there's another problem in the um, environmental impact of diapers. So, I mean, just for reference, a diaper is about 10 times as durable as the kid it's on. So like a baby is good for about 100 years and a diaper is good for 1,000. Like the, the diaper will be on the planet 10 times longer than the kid it's supposed to serve. Um, and if you kid, you know, consider that a kid goes through, you know, four or five diapers a day, um, if you could solve that problem and make the diaper less of an environmental disaster, that might be a really good thing to do. So I'm working on that problem. Now, the thing that I'm expecting to do is build a biodegradable diaper out of no plastics. So in a, pl a diaper with no plastics in it. Um, I don't know if I can do that. Like I'm, I'm, I've got a great team. We're working, we're researching materials. We're, you know, talking to everybody we can. And, um, if somebody wants to come work on diapers in St. Louis, Missouri, you know, if I come in, right. Uh, we'll, we'll bring you on the team. It's a lot of fun, but we don't know that we can build it. But if we do, we know that the problem is significant. So I always start with the problem. Why do you think there's no one else done it before? I used to ask myself that question. I used to say, well, why hasn't anybody else done this if I'm planning to do it? Um, and, and sometimes I get an answer. Um, oftentimes I don't. Oftentimes I'm just like, well, uh, I know nobody's done it because I went looking for a solution and there's nothing out there. Um, but then usually what happens is I'll start working and halfway through the development of the product, I will find three or four problems that are big and I'll go, oh, that's why nobody else did it, right? So in Square's case, like it was obvious because like in the first three hours of running the company, we discovered a bunch of rules that specifically forbade what we were doing. Like it was just against the rules. In some cases, these were laws. In some cases, they were MasterCard and Visa rules. And But in every case, like we found, oh my God, here's another rule that we're violating. Oh my God, here's another. And, and you know, I think I stopped counting at 17, but at, you know, at a dozen violations, it was pretty obvious why nobody was doing what we were doing. Because they looked at these rules and said, oh, well, we can't do that. So they quit. And we looked at those rules and said, well, that's a stupid rule. So, you know, um, yeah, don't, don't obey all the speed limits. <laughs> but, but 
thing is um, a lot of incredible founders that I've met over the years, um, they all look at things from first principles. Uh, I bet you guys did it at Square too. Uh, at what point do you really put the first principles to use and just... Uh, I've never used those phrase first, first principles. I don't even know what that means. I mean, that sounds like some marketing crap that somebody used to sell books. Yeah, so what it means is basically you, when you solve a problem, you go and you go out to tackle a problem. You, for a second, you remove all the rules and the regulations that exist for it and just focus on it. How would you solve it if there were no rules or regulations that exist? Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, so how do you really do that and then when the rules come into play, you go against the rules? Oh, um, that's a very good question. Um I think you have to have a certain amount of arrogance and a certain amount of humility. And they sound like antithetical concepts, but I, I believe you need to have the arrogance of the hubris to believe that something's possible. Um, and then you immediately follow that up with the humility to realize that you may not be the best person to do it. Um, there'll be better people than you who can do these things. Um, and that other, some other people may have solved part of the problems. So you don't need to invent everything. Um, but that's how I proceed. I always look at the problem as if it's something that humans can solve. I'm one human. Uh, I'm fairly smart, but, you know, not all that smart, I guess. And so I try to get smart people around me who can help. Uh, and then we all tackle the problem. And usually someone will come up with something. Um, and, you know, the rules... I don't disregard rules. I see them and I ignore them. Like I recognize that they are there. But if it's a rule, like if there's a rule that says a plastic diaper has to be built with some sort of, like I, I, haven't, I haven't even looked up any of the patent law in diapers. I'm just building what I want. And, you know, patents are kind of these weird, patents are kind of like rules that somebody else owns, you know? Um. So if I violate a bunch of patents, then we're going to have a fight in court. Um, uh, or maybe I'll have to license them. Or maybe I won't build it. I mean, I don't know. Um, but uh, there's a bunch of rules that are written for the existing systems. And sometimes those rules don't anticipate new systems. So, you know, the, the music licensure rules didn't anticipate streaming. And as a result, I think the artists are getting screwed on music. Like if you, I've got a friend of mine who's a recording artist and, uh, you know, the guy's got a lot of popular songs and he's, you know, close to destitute because the rules didn't anticipate that all the money would be made with streaming and, you know, the contracts that he had with the record companies didn't protect him in the proper way and they protected the company. See, there's just a bunch of stuff going on. But like, those are rules that I am perfectly fine violating. You know, there are other rules that, you know, you better respect. Um, a lot of laws that you should respect, you know, so I'm not saying break all laws and ignore stuff, but I'm saying that, yeah, you have to have a certain amount of hubris to look at a rule and critically say, okay, I understand why it exists and it no longer applies. Therefore, I will circumvent it. Does that change as you as the company grows, as you get more people at 
Yes, yes. You you do less of that as as you grow bigger, less and less. But your uh, uh, let's say the your first five or first ten hires, how do you go about doing that at a very innovative company? Well, in an innovative company, by my definition, you're doing something that has never been done before. Yeah. So, an innovative company is not a new company. An innovative company can be an old company that's trying to build a product that's never been built, or it can be a new group, new company that's trying to build a product that's never been built. But to me, innovation is doing what has never been done before. Um, so the real question is, how do you get people to work on something that has not been demonstrated to work? And those are special people. And I think the first trick is you honestly explain to them that what they're working on is, you know, nuclear fusion and it doesn't work. I mean, it, like it works in an H bomb, like it works in the sun. Like we have examples of fusion as a functional, you know, physical process, but like we don't have anything that works that we can contain and get power out of, you know? So, so if I'm hiring you and I say, Hey, Advik, come on over and join my fusion company. Uh, and don't worry, I'll tell you exactly what to do. Uh, like you also better know that fusion as it is defined today doesn't work. So, um, so now the question is, okay, is Advik going to take the job? Like, are you the sort of guy who can handle that level of uncertainty? And let's, let, you know, let's say you're a, you know, a top level engineer from uh, Washington university and you're, you're a, just a baller, um, with physics and math and you want to do this. And I say, hey, we're going to work on a project called Fusion and it's never worked. You may go, ah, you know, I'd really rather work on Fission, which has been demonstrated and works for 50 years. So I, I think if you're just honest with your team about the level of risk and ignorance, you will drive away the people who are not ready for that journey. Um, so just be very honest with everybody. And then the people who show up tend to be mutants. They tend to be people who, you know, for one reason or another have been taking a different path through life. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. My, my diaper company just hired this guy who actually I knew when we were starting Square. He was out with me in California and uh, previously had lived in St. Louis. And this guy's like a mad genius. Um, and he, like I knew he was a mad genius. And then I've got this diaper problem. And he's never worked on diapers before. He's got no kids. Like he's not even married. Like he's just, you know, this 50-year-old kind of crazy problem solver. And I told him about the diaper problem. And he got super interested. Um, now, he comes with a weird set of quirks and behaviors, you know, um, but we can work with that, uh, cause we're a small company and who cares? Like, I don't care if he, you know, you can come to work in a chicken outfit. I really don't care at all. Um, but he's never fit into a corporate world. So, um, you know, Twitter had the same problem. One of their best engineers in the early days of Twitter, uh, Jack always was telling me, was an anarchist. Like he believed in no government like that. He firmly believed that the best way for humans to, you know, cohabitate was no government. Um, 
And, you know, my answer to people like that is great. Go move to the Central African Republic and there's basically no government there. Um, so, you know, enjoy your life in the CAR. Um, but no, he was, you know, happily living in California, which has a lot of government and complaining about it. But, you know, like he was an anarchist and he was an asshole and he pissed a bunch of people off. And eventually they had to get rid of him because he was so disruptive. But, you know, he was also down for the journey of building, you know, the first, you know, personal messaging system. And he helped stand Twitter up. But uh, do you really require these rule breakers that innovative companies? No, you don't need rule breakers. You need people who are willing to do things that have been done, that have never been done before. But a lot of those folks are comfortable without rules. So you tend to get rule breakers. Like if you, you know, divide the world into the people, rule followers and rule breakers. Okay. And then you say, okay, I'm going to build a system that has no rules. Like which of those two groups do you think is going to be more attracted to a world with no rules? Or, or, or I should say a world where the rules are not yet known. That's, that's actually what it is. It's not that there are no rules. It's just we don't know what they are. We will be making up those rules. We will be defining them and discovering them. And that discovery happens later. So I can't tell you what the rules are in advance. So, I mean, look, there are rules for nuclear fusion. We don't know them yet. But someday we'll discover them and then we'll follow them. And then, you know, you'll need a different set of engineers. You talk about uh, the rules part there. Incredibly fascinating. Uh, you don't know what the rules are. You are assuming that these are the rules that you will be captivated by when, as the company grows or as it goes into the future. How much of it really is according to the assumptions that you guys make? during that process well look it's not it's not an assumption that you even need to understand you don't have to come to work and say i'm creating the rules for the future i mean that's a little arrogant and stupid so that's not your job your job is to figure out how to get this thing to work right and if one of the answers is well you got to turn it on let it warm up for five minutes, then turn it off, let it cool down for five minutes, then turn it back on, and then it works. Okay, that becomes a rule. You know, that's the startup sequence. And we'll write, we'll write it down, we'll put it in a checklist, you know, we'll we'll build some circuit that automatically does that so you don't have to remember it. But like that, okay, that's that's how you got it going. Because I don't know what it is. Like I don't know what you're trying to do. Like if you're trying to build an airline, well, that's not in my book. I mean, I study airlines, but what Southwest Airlines did is not necessarily it's going to work today. You know, nuclear fusion, don't know what the rules are. Uh, Square, well, we happened to do it and it worked, but like, I can't tell you that it would work again today exactly the same way. Like, if you're going to do something new, you have to figure that out on your own. And that's exactly what an innovation stack is. It's, it's the sum total of things that you've figured out. So if you have ever, like, like you could live your entire life and never do anything new. Now, it'll be new for you. Like the first time you take an airplane, great, you've taken an airplane for the first time. But that's not the first time a human's flown on an airplane. You know, I mean, the first time you get married, that's new for you. But others have been there before, you know. So um, 
you can spend your entire life with this sort of safe distance between you and the frontier of what humanity is doing. I have no interest in that. I like I do that most of my life. Most of my life is not original. But since we're all familiar with how to do that stuff, my book is to prepare you for the moments in your life when you are actually at the edge of what humanity knows how to do. And and this is not going to happen that often. It it may never happen to you if you live a certain way. But but if you're thoughtful and aggressive and want to change the world and see problems, then you'll probably find yourself from time to time in a position where, okay, here's a problem and nobody's ever solved it. And there's no YouTube video and no conference I can go to, but I want to fix this. I want to solve this problem. Okay. So now you are on that edge of where my book starts to become relevant. And if you step over that edge into the world where we don't know what the solution is and what the rules are. Everything about your physiology is going to start pulling you back to the world of the known. And not just, I mean, first of all, your cells are going to do this. Your brain's going to do this. And your parents are going to do this. And your friend's going to do this. And everyone's going to be like, Advic, hey man, stop that shit and come back and do something else. Right? Do this thing that we all know how to do. Do this thing where we feel safe. And and they, they're not saying this because they're jealous of you. They're not saying this because they want to sabotage your success. They're saying this because they like you and they want you to be safe like they are. I've seen people who get up to that edge and are about to do something new, something really meaningful for the world. And as soon as they step over that edge, they immediately feel the fear and this, I always hear, I'm not qualified. Like, I'm not qualified to do this. And my answer to them is, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely not qualified to do this. You have no qualifications because nobody is qualified to do something the first time it's done. Like the the Wright brothers. So Wilbur and Orville Wright flipped a coin to see who was going to fly the plane the first year. He wasn't a qualified pilot. It didn't matter if it was Wilbur or Orville because neither one of them no human on earth was qualified to be a pilot before there were planes. So they had to get in and figure it out literally in the air. That's how they figured out how to fly a plane. They were five feet off the ground in Kitty Hawk going, whoa, you know, got to do this. So that is a really difficult situation to experience for the first time. But if you've read my book, what will happen if you find yourself in that situation, you will hear my voice, my words in your head, and you'll be like, oh God, this is what McKelvey was talking about. Oh man, this is what it feels. Oh yeah, my friends are saying this, my parents are saying this, the bankers are saying that like it will just feel familiar. Not that you'll know exactly what to do because I can't tell you exactly what to do, but you will at least go, oh yeah, um, I've been warned that this is how it's going to feel. How do you know that you're crossing the edge? Fear. The fear will kick. Oh, the fear will kick. Fear of? Uh, the fear of being out of the herd. So humans are pack animals. We, we clump together. 
we are social animals. We we are attuned to the ways of others. So, I mean, like I'm just looking at your podcast room and you have the big mic with the spit guard and it's on a extension boom and you're wearing headsets. And do you know how many times I've seen guys in exactly that setup? You know, now if you'd been hanging upside down on five rubber bands, you know, uh, and speaking through a megaphone, uh, I would go, oh, wow, that's weird. I've never seen it. But like, I've seen the podcast that you're doing right now. Yeah. 500 times. You know, it's, it's, it's expected. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, so I'm comfortable. I'm like, oh, I fix a podcaster. I see that. Right. Makes me comfortable. Yeah. Um, if you were doing something weird, I'd feel less comfortable. I might be less candid. Um, but you're definitely getting a, a different response from people who are scared. And the reason they're scared is your fear sensors kick in when you no longer are part of the herd. Like when you're not with the rest of us, you become acutely aware of that. And I don't know, have you ever had the situation where you're, you're someplace and everybody else is dressed differently? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel? Well, probably not too good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what it's like. That It's that level of fear, only like times 10. Like it'll be way, way worse. What is the herd really doing that you're not? Well, the herd's doing what they know how to do. They're doing what they've always done. Um, and because you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before, you don't get their protection. You're trying to build a diaper that doesn't use any any plastic. Every diaper in the world uses plastic. Plastic, plastic, plastic. That's all those things are made of. There's a little bit of wood pulp and plastic is every other component. Okay, so if you're trying to build without plastic, you're on your own. Um, you know, pick any innovative product or team and you're going to see a large division between what they're doing and what society has always done. Just ignore it. I mean, look, uh, again, I, I focus on the problem, not the herd. So I don't, I don't think we're doing it differently. I mean, I do in hindsight, you know, but while we're doing it, I don't care. As a matter of fact, when we're doing it, I always look for other people who are doing it like I did. Um, you know, we when we started Square, we found another company that was actually building card readers that plugged in through the headset jack. Like the thing that we're most credited with is an innovation. Like there was another company that thought of exactly the same thing. So like I'm not worried about one or two. Um, or 10, um, if, if they're doing what we're doing and they're successfully solving the problem that we're trying to solve, the only question I'll ask myself is, you know, does the world need more than one solution to this problem? You know, and if the answer is no, probably could just use one, then maybe I'll quit. Although the other thing I usually do is say, well, I don't trust them to get it right. So I'm going to keep going. What do you think creates the perfect solution for a problem? 
when the problem goes away. Like in Square's case, the problem was I couldn't get paid as a small artist. Yeah. So as soon as I could get paid, that was pro- problem solved. Now, there are other problems. Oh, wait a second. Okay, now I can get paid, but I need to keep track of my money. Okay, so I need a point of sale system. Okay, I can k- keep track of my money, but I need to uh, you know, get a loan. Okay, so we bring out Square Capital. Okay, well, I can get a loan, I can finance, but uh, now I got all these employees I need to manage. Okay, so we'll give you some payroll tools. Okay, I got all these employees, and it's tax time, and I got to prepare my tax. Okay, well, we'll do a tax prep thing for you. You know, okay, so I'm starting to build up money. I want to send it to a guy, and he doesn't have a bank account. Okay, well, we'll build Cash App so that now you can do that. Okay, now there are millions of people using Cash App, and uh, they're se- sending money, you know, they're putting money into Cash App, and they need a way to save. Okay, so we'll put a savings function in there. Well, they need a way to invest. Okay, so we'll put stock purchases in there. Okay, well, they want to do something with crypto. Okay, we'll put Bitcoin in there. You know, so you keep going. I'll go back to your last point a little bit. You talked about the card reader or the squared card reader that you built, the real or the innovation that you guys are accredited with. I don't, unfortunately, I code software. I don't code hardware. So how do you really design an incredible hardware product? Uh, well, in my case, I moved to Shenzhen, China and just lived in the factories with the engineers and the builders until we had something that I liked. Uh, it was me and my wife. Uh, she was my fiance at the time, but we were living in Shenzhen and just go to the factories every day and talk to them about what they could injection mold and what electronics I needed and how they needed to go together and what the signal strength needed to be, what the uh, resistance needed to be. I mean, you know, like, now I'm not an electrical engineer, but I can I can do math, you know, I've got a computer engineering degree, so it wasn't that hard to figure out. Um, it was a more difficult thing building something that was really cool than building something that was mechanically correct. So the square reader, and I talk about this in the book as well, is too small. Like it is this wide and a credit card is that wide. So the credit card would tend to wobble as it goes through. And the easy solution to this is just make the reader wider. But to do that, it didn't look as, it didn't look as cool. So I ended up not building something that worked well. I built something that looked cool. Um, and that was sort of tough for me because... I didn't, like as an engineer, I knew I should build the thing that worked well, but people were responding so well to this little one and the big one they were just kind of yawning at. So I went with the little one. I mean, I wasn't just me. That that was a company decision, um, but I was certainly in favor of making something cool. What did your factory workers in Shenzhen really react to when they heard or when you told them what you were building? Was it really, uh, how was it for them to create something that was practically never been created before? Well, I think they see a lot of that in China. I mean, they're building stuff all the time for the world that they don't know what the component does. Like, they don't care. You know, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like to be a, you know, Chinese factory worker, but yeah. I do know what it's like to work in a factory and I do know what each step of my product required and 
you know, there was some electronics. Well, they were certainly familiar with that. And there was some assembly. Well, they were familiar with that. And there's some injector molded plastic. Well, they're familiar with that. You know, so you could take each of those components like, well, we have, we have specifications, we have tolerances and those things get put together. And then, you know, we have a final test and it passes the final test and it ships. So the problem in our case was that what we were trying to build was uh, dependent on reed heads, which were sort of hard to make and not very popular. Like in the 1970s, there were all these factories that made tape players and they needed reed heads. You know, in the you know, tw- 2010, there's just is not a lot of magne- magnetic tape business out there. So the reed head factories were all going away. So like I ended up at one of the factories designing a new type of reed head so that we could cram it in the, uh, um, in the square reader and, uh, you know, get everything working. And, and it, it worked like we, I, I, ha- I think I built the, the world's smallest, um, you know, iron core reed head. I think, I mean, I don't know if it's a record, but it was certainly smaller than anything I'd ever seen on the market. Uh, how do you really, um, at, at Square 2 and at, at Square, basically at Square, how do you really go about the manufacturing process? These days, we do it with teams of engineers and depends what we're manufacturing. But I think we do it like most other companies do. We use an international design team. You know, the parts are spec all over the world. Uh, we try to do assembly, you know, somewhere that's not just China because the Chinese supply chains have been unreliable lately. Um, but you're still going to make a lot of stuff in China. Um, and, uh, you know, behind, beyond that, I'm no longer the manufacturing expert. I mean, the guys who took over from me were way better at manufacturing than I was. It's just when we started the company, I was the only guy who really wanted to tackle manufacturing. So I was the guy that got to go, you know, live in Shenzhen. Why didn't you guys outsource the manufacturing in the start? Um, I think, first of all, that's expensive. Secondly, we were building something that had never been built before. And I didn't want to wait for a cycle. Like I was building new readers every day. And it was me and my wife and I maybe I maybe had one or two other pairs of hands that were helping. But like I would build it, I would test it, I would modify the design, I would go build another one. You know, like my cycle time was sometimes a new product every day. You know, dozens and dozens of iterations in a month. Um, you know, if we'd been with Flextronics you know, or some design company, like we would have had one meeting a week and we would have one product review cycle every month. You know, I was probably a thousand times faster than one of those companies, at least a hundred times faster than one of those companies. Um, and by the way, those companies were not even the innovative ones. The innovative ones were all in Shenzhen, but nobody spoke Chinese. Like, so like you want real innovation, go, you know, sit in the part of the world where you know, there are literally 24-hour, you know, electronic shops open. And you can get ABS plastics delivered, you know, same day. 
and then see how fast your manufacturing prototypes come out. So I just want to control. Why do you think that um, they're not as innovative as the people or the manufacturers in China? Shenzhen, Um You know, there's a Chinese Nobel laureate um, who talks about, I don't speak Chinese, but he talks about the language being imprecise. You know, the punctuation of Chinese is different than the punctuation of English. The specificity that it's, it's a language where I think you have more leeway to interpret, which is great for some things, but for, you know, sort of scientific stuff where you need real precision. And when there's a very, very specific difference between, you know, a, a left spin and a right spin or, you know, some sort of, um, you know, they're, they're just very subtle differences. Um, uh, that seems to be part of it. Um, and that's from a Chinese Nobel laureate, not from me. So I'm just echoing back what, you know, what I've heard. Um, but you know, the major innovations the world is sort of addicted to have mostly come from the U S. Um, and we've got a system that seems to create that sort of competition, um, or thought or, or freedom. Like maybe it's just the ability to do something like a guy like me in China might be locked up. I don't know. I doubt it. I mean, I, I probably work for the government, you know, like that's, I'm, <laughs> I'm a survivor. I'd probably, you know, be the minister of, you know, trade with some country or something. I don't know. Well, I'd probably be, just, I'd probably just be some, you know, like low level bureaucrat. Um, but I don't have a, um, a real insight into what the Chinese do wrong. I can just point to the fact that it, it is a problem. And, and it could be political. It could be social. It could be just time on the planet. Um, it could be that they're too good at doing other stuff. That's actually a, a, a big roadblock for some things. Like If you're really excellent at other stuff, uh, you tend to not be able to do new things outside of those areas or even change what you're excellent at. You're just going to keep doing that. Why? Well, because you're good at it and it works. Doesn't that go against the idea of like trying new things and experimenting more? Well, yeah, but I don't believe in trying new things. Like, that's not the point for me. I believe in solving problems that have not been solved before. If I can do that by repeating something that already works, that's my favorite way to solve a problem. I think you need to be willing to do things that haven't been done before. But I don't enjoy it. Like I don't just get up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to have an innovative breakfast. Let me eat something that no human has ever eaten before. Where do you really separate the line between not trying new stuff versus trying something and finding that where you want to spend most of your time. Okay, so pick your problem and then what do you need to do to solve it? And and if what you need to do hasn't been done before, then you got to figure that out. But don't worry about being innovative. Innovation does not result from an innovative mindset or a first principles or whatever you call it mindset. I think that's a bunch of crap. It 
it evolves from finding something that nobody knows how to do, a problem that has not been solved before, and then asking yourself the very tough question, am I willing to cross the line into the world where there are no experts? And do I believe that I can make that transition? And if the answer is yes, then you're in my world and welcome. And I'm sorry, nobody can help you because nobody's done it either. Um, we'll all be sympathetic when you have trouble and when you have fears and when your parents think you're crazy and all this other stuff. But like, we're not going to give you a playbook. So good luck. And you're going to need a different skill set. And that's another thing that I talk about in the book. Um, but, you know, the basic news is this is what innovation is like. And most people who are innovative fail. Like most attempts at innovation are failures. The successes are tremendous. So if you want to become, you know, a multi-billionaire, um, well, it's still probably better to work on Wall Street, but I think it's more fun to do it we get to do, which is pick a problem the world hasn't solved and get to it. Do you think innovation is a limited resource? No, I think people's ability to accept uncertainty is limited. That's what I'm fighting against with my book. I'm trying to get normal people to not see innovation as something for special super people. It's just something that normal people do when threatened, like when they care enough about a problem that they want it solved and the world hasn't come up with a solution yet that works. So they have to do it. Innovation is a thing that's forced upon you. I mean, I honestly don't pay any attention. I mean, if Elon Musk was here, we'd have a good conversation. You know, I don't know. I mean, I've met Elon all at once, you know? Um, so I, I honestly don't care. Innovation is not a topic that I'm interested in sort of academically. It's this thing that I saw being excluded from the toolkit of normal people. Like I dedicated the book to somebody who I thought would be a great innovator, but has always quit before she really left the herd, before she really got to do things that nobody else had done. And, um, and actually a year ago, she came up with a really innovative solution to, I think, a pretty big problem. And so maybe she's on the path now. But, you know, at the time, I'd seen her time and again encounter a problem, want to solve it, see that nobody else had solved it, and then say, but who am I? Who am I to solve this? I'm not qualified. And she, she'd, at that point, she'd stop. And so my book is dedicated to this person. And, and the answer is, you don't actually have to stop. Now, nobody's going to guarantee you that you'll succeed. But if we all stopped, the world would never have a new thing. So hopefully more people will, you know, if they don't read my book, I don't care. But if they, if they stop trying new things, I care a lot. So I want to, I want to be a voice to encourage folks who care about a problem to apply this tool set that is really misunderstood. Um, and it pisses me off that innovation has all of a sudden become this trendy, cool thing. 
because every time something becomes trendy in my world, I, I get a little nervous. Um, you know, payments, when we started Square, payments in fintech didn't exist. You know, Square was, you know, arguably the first, if not one of the first fintech companies. I guess PayPal was before us, but like, it really wasn't much. Um, we were, you know, sort of category defining. And again, I didn't care about that. It, it all happened later. Um, yeah. But in hindsight, none of that was important. What was important was that myself and other people like me couldn't run their businesses. And so somebody needed to fix that. And that was what we did. Did you, uh, did you really look at Square as a company while building it? Well, I mean, the company is just a structure. So... I've started teams, I've started nonprofits, I've started companies. You know, it's just a structure. But, you know, the corporate structure seemed to make sense for Square. Yeah. That's incredible. I think uh, this is very incredible. There's big, this is incredible for me. I've been eyeing this one for a very, very long time. And uh, I, I believe that it's for people like you. So I think this has been incredible. One last question I'd like to end sure. with. Uh, I've been into startups and VC since I was 11. What do you think is one fact that would blow 11 year old me mind? Um, well, is it you're four years younger than Jack Dorsey when I first started working with him? Jack the genius. Jack the genius <laughs> at age 15. Yeah, look, I mean, it's not, it's not an age thing. It's not a wisdom thing. It's a it's a skills and competence thing and the ability to try to solve problems that we formerly haven't had the will to solve. Um, you know, 11 might be young, but that's a good age to start, you know, start thinking about it because, you know, what will probably happen is in your lifetime, you'll see 10 really big problems, maybe more, maybe, you know, like stuff that, stuff that you could solve um, if you apply things right, if you do things right, if you're not paralyzed by the fear and, you know, destroyed by self-doubt and, and, and pretty lucky on top of it. Um, but that's, that's a lot. That's a good lifetime. Like, that's a really good use of a human life, I think. And, and so if you start looking early, Maybe you'll get to do three of them, you know. Uh, doing one is amazing. Uh, doing two would be amazing, even more so. So, um, you know, I don't think it's bad that your 11-year-old self was looking. Yeah, still, still, still looking. Uh, I think this would be incredible. Uh, that's it from my saying thing you'd like to say. That's it. No, Avik, uh, you know, please uh, spread the word and thank you. <laughs>